Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Metaphysical Apothecary podcast. I'm your host, Megan, one half of the Scorpio sisters. I'm coming to you solo with the second part of our Meet the Witch miniseries. It's been so enriching and fun sharing our insights with you over the last almost three years. <laughs> it's been great for us. So Shannon and I thought it could be interesting to share more details about our personal journeys and how we found our way into witchcraft how our practices developed, and those sorts of things. Because everybody's journey is what really shapes their spirituality. Your experiences dictate both what you need and what you do during your practice. For instance, I have become a healer. The way that I do healing is very different than the way that other pagan practitioners do energetic and physical healing. And it's because of my neurotype, the way that my brain is wired. It's because of my experiences growing up. It's because of what I need in terms of my personal healing. So there's just a lot of things that dovetail together to make us who we become when we walk down the pagan path. And that's true for other paths as well, but we're talking about the pagan path here. <laughs> So Shannon's and my journeys look very different. In her introductory episode, you learned that she had a lot of freedom to explore and learn when she was a child. Her parents were very okay with whatever she wanted to kind of read or watch or investigate. They fostered her curiosity in terms of pretty much anything she wanted to explore. For me, that was not the case. <laughs> I am a proud member of the ex-evangelical, ex-gifted kid to neurodivergent pagan camp. That sounds extremely specific, but there are so many people that I have encountered both on social media and in person that have had that exact same journey. They started out in an evangelical atmosphere when they were younger. They were always sort of told to be different than how they were. And then growing up, they started to realize that people disliked their differences because they're neurodivergent. That's an experience that a lot of neurodivergent people have. We fidget, or we say the wrong thing, or we are just weird. You know, we get bullied for being weird when we're younger. Then we grow up and we realize, okay, we're neurodivergent, which looks weird to neurotypical people, just like they look weird to us. It's not okay to bully people, but the recognition of the differences does make sense. Another thing that people in this very specific group have in common a lot of the time is that we were praised for being smart at the same time that we were both being bullied or punished for being strange or weird. For a lot of us, that developed into anxiety, that was compounded by our neurodivergence, and then a lot of us also discovered that we were queer. So this is my journey. <laughs> I was that evangelical little girl who was trying her best to be a good Christian. And then as I got older, I just kept gravitating towards things that I was told were sinful and wrong. At the start of my personal journey was a paradox. As I've said, I grew up in a very evangelical atmosphere with not just my parents, but my entire family. We were at church every Sunday, sometimes a couple of times a week. We prayed before every meal together. There was a lot of Bible study, like impromptu Bible study and hymn singing going on in my family, which in some ways 
was communal. It was enriching. And in other ways, it was very damaging. I also grew up in Appalachia, in the Allegheny section of the Appalachian Mountains, which is one of the areas of the United States that is heavily steeped in folklore and magic of many different flavors and varieties. In the 1930s, when my grandmother was a small child, her grandmother lived next door to a self-proclaimed warlock who she tells stories of this man doing things that should have been impossible. Things like lifting a cast iron furnace with his bare hands to take it upstairs for my great-great-grandmother. Making the neighbors move because my great-great-grandmother said that she wished she had bought that house instead of the one that she was living in. Just offhandedly mentioned this. A second warlock also lived in the area and the two disliked each other. So my grandmother <laughs> grew up with stories of like a genuine magical rivalry going on in this area. And it was far from the only supernatural or paranormal encounter any one of us ever had. All of us encountered paranormal things growing up. All of us followed specific superstitions growing up. Everyone knows about the Appalachia, don't look between the trees. Don't listen to voices in the woods. Don't go in the woods at night. Don't look in the cornfields at night. All of those kinds of things. So it was a paradox. On one hand, you have to believe in Jesus and God, and that is what you should be following, and you shouldn't be following anything else. But also, here's this hefty dose of superstition. While Jesus is still an occasional presence in my life, my wife happens to work with him, I gravitated more toward the paranormal and arcane. That's what I wanted to know about my grandmother and I was lucky enough to have my great-grandmother until I was 12. So when the two of them started talking back and forth about the encounters that they had had and this magical rivalry that went on that they both knew about, I would just learn to make myself small and sit in the corner and listen very carefully because I knew if I moved or asked a question, I would be told to leave the room. Partially, my parents didn't want me to be exposed to certain things that were not Christian or godly in their mind. But also, my older sister often got frightened by these stories, so they were also trying to protect me from that. But the supernatural, the paranormal, has never scared me. I have a much healthier respect for it now as an adult, but I've never really been afraid of it. So the way I was raised was out of love. My family, my parents, they wanted to make sure that my afterlife, going to heaven, was guaranteed. They wanted to raise me, my sister, my cousins with healthy morals so that we would make good decisions growing up. That There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it was also extremely restrictive, which was very traumatizing for me. It is very traumatizing because you're taught that your identity is not your own. It belongs to someone else from the time you're very small. There was some misogyny and the assumption that I would one day belong to my husband. That did not happen. <laughs> but that I would have to do certain things to make sure that he was happy. And my own personal happiness and satisfaction seemed to be extremely unimportant. Throughout my teen years, I struggled quite a lot with the idea that I needed to do certain things to be a good Christian, but my natural inclinations were often the opposite. I saw unfair things happening and wanted to fix them. That is 
an autistic trait. Most people who are autistic look at unfair situations and go, I don't give a shit what the rules say. This is wrong. This is not okay. <laughs> and being told that it didn't matter what my perception was gave me a great deal of anxiety. There was a lot that I had to put away, that I had to hide, and later in life would unpack because my college tribe was incredible. I'd like to say that as soon as I entered college, I dove into these forbidden subjects with both feet, with, you know, no fear whatsoever. That was not the case at all. <laughs> I had so much fear. By the time I entered college, I had a lot of fear. And I think that that is something that a lot of us who shed the evangelical path for the pagan one experience. We walk into the pagan path with these doubts in the back of our mind because it's been ingrained in us that anything that is not Christian, that is not the Bible, is the devil and is demons and is evil. And we have to do a lot of deprogramming to recognize that, that simply is not the case. I, have, I will be doing deprogramming for the rest of my life. And I know that there are those listening to this and others out there who had the same experience. Fortunately for me, I had Shannon, my future wife, our other best friends from that time who were willing to hold space for me and remind me that it was safe to explore these things. Shannon was especially supportive because she looked at me and she said, oh, you were triggered by the word witch itself. We are, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> because she recognized in me the intense desire and the rightness of the pagan spiritual path. And I think that that's one of the most interesting things about the exvangelical to pagan pipeline is that so many of us were attracted to the supernatural, were attracted to spellcraft from the time we were children. I was the little kid who was always picking up shiny rocks and interesting looking sticks and wanted to be making teas and potions and those kinds of things. And for the first part of my life, I was allowed to do that. It was when I became a little bit too interested in it that it became sort of forbidden for me. But as I got older and started to shed that fear, I recognized who I was actually supposed to be and where I was actually supposed to go in terms of my spirituality and who I was as a person. As Shannon and I have mentioned before, the college that we went to is kind of a supernatural paranormal hotspot. The college itself is very haunted. This may be normal for college dorms to be fairly haunted. I would think it would be. I've never been to another college dorm, so I don't know. <laughs> but ours was extremely haunted. And there were a ton of Wiccans, Pagans, and other magical practitioners on campus. They were everywhere. It's almost like we were being drawn into this space. So there was this wealth of knowledge for me to tap into, and it was also an opportunity for me to become more comfortable with the idea of practicing witchcraft, where I could not only see that the people who were doing this were just fine. There was nothing wrong with them. They were healthy. They were fulfilled and enriched. It was also a safe space for me to start dipping my toes. And as soon as I started dipping my toes, 
my talents started to rise to the surface. Talents that showed themselves when I was younger, but I was not allowed to tap into. For instance, I'm autistic, and the autistic brain is wired to see patterns. Sometimes the pattern-seeking nature of the autistic brain results in an almost supernatural perception of the minutia in the world around us. I've known and heard about autistic folks who can hear the difference in warm versus cool air currents. I can smell when snow is coming. I can smell when rain is coming up to a day before it actually happens. I can feel on my skin the difference between the warm and cool air currents. I can just put my hands down around my body and feel that chill air that sits beneath the hot air, usually around the end of summer that's still around in August, but the chill air is kind of sweeping through underneath, and I can feel those currents as they start to come in. I can read people very, very well. Their body language, their facial movements, the timbre of their voice, these are patterns that I picked up growing up from not being socially apt. <laughs> still not good at socializing. I'm just less self-conscious about it. But these were patterns that I learned growing up to tell whether or not somebody was authentic. I don't like to use the terms good or bad person, but there are people out there who are authentic and genuine, and then there are people out there who feel the need to manipulate and bully to get what they want. Learning these patterns has not only helped me surround myself with people who are authentic, it helps me tell the difference between these two types of people very, very quickly. Pretty much as soon as I meet someone, I am able to tell whether or not they're authentic or inauthentic. And to the outside world, these appear to be supernatural abilities. There's a supernatural component to this because part of what the autistic pattern-seeking brain does is it reads vibration, because that is what our universe is made of, is made of vibration and frequency. And I have a personal theory that those with autism are more aware of another person's vibration in their subtle body, because the subtle body is that bioelectric field that sits around us. They bump up against each other before we actually even touch. So autistic people who don't enjoy being touched or don't enjoy being touched by strangers especially feel that invasion they feel that melding of the bioelectric fields more strongly than neurotypical people would which is why they don't enjoy being touched at least that's my personal theory that's my unverified personal gnosis in thinking about my neurotype my experiences and the experiences of the other autistic people who are both spiritually aware and also pagan because there are a ton of us we are drawn to witchcraft like moths to a flame <laughs> Except our <laughs> our brains are wired to sit just outside the flame because we know that it's going to be too hot <laughs> if we get too close because we've already done that analysis at lightning speed. That's not to say that we are not disabled. We do need accommodations and we do need access to those accommodations, but I feel like there's more of a celebration of what we can do coming through, especially in the spiritual communities, and that's that's an amazing thing. So there's a vibrational component to this pattern recognition that the autistic brain does. 
for me, it also manifests in the spiritual ability of divination. I'm a channel. That's something that I have been developing, is being able to channel non-tangible beings, certainly deities, but also guides, nature, spirits, things of that nature. Not through my body itself, but being able to recognize that energy when it pops up and interpret what they're telling me through feelings and images. So it's the next step up from the divination practice of looking at the patterns in the tarot cards, the patterns in the runes, the patterns in the, the bones, the crystals, the magpie, oracle, whatever you're using. The other supernatural gift that I have been developing over the years is that of being a healer. And I said at the beginning of the podcast that the way that I employ healing is very different than the way that you normally picture it in terms of a witch who's also a healer. Certainly, I am not above putting together a tea or a soup or a tisane. I have made salves and ointments and all of those sorts of things. I do have a personal home apothecary. I have done energy work to help people calm down, to help people feel less pain. I am not great at the energy work piece of the healing. What I am good at is explaining things to people. <laughs> I am really, really good at explaining things to people, including their own thoughts and feelings and where those things are coming from. I will listen to someone talk about how they're feeling and what they're struggling with along with other pieces of information that people just give you subconsciously about their family, about their personal background, about what they're dealing with at work or school or in their relationship. And because my brain loves to create patterns, I can usually tell that person, hey, this is where that's coming from. You're anxious because you're being gaslit at work. And this is how I can tell that you're being gaslit at work. And you see that light bulb come on over the person's head. And it's like this win because now they are empowered to do something about that problem. And that's sort of how my version of healing works. It's giving the person the tools that they need through teaching and explanation to take control of their own healing journey. Because frankly, I said I'm not good at energy work. I don't have as much energy to do things as a neurotypical person does, or a person with ADHD even. I know that my ADHD loved ones have more energy than I do, but they only have it for certain things. <laughs> because they need that good dopamine, right? But this world is so chaotic and full of noise and screens and sensations that I have to use a lot of the energy that I do have to manage myself. And I know that that's an experience that a lot of autistic people have is that we have to use a lot of energy to manage ourselves and accommodate ourselves just doing daily tasks, especially if you work in an office with other people, especially if you have to be in public a lot of the time. One of the reasons I'm not great at energy work is because I have to expend it on things that human beings didn't have to deal with until very recently in human history. Now, if I was afforded the time and seclusion of, say, a monastery or an abbey, I would probably be much better at it. 
And there's an interesting correlation between spirituality and neurodivergence. So if you look at monasteries and abbeys, they are perfectly set up to accommodate neurodivergent people. Neurodivergent people, asexual people, and also queer people. And that is the case with spiritual practices, especially where the, the spiritualists live with each other in communal space. That is the case throughout most cultures in the world. And it's not just Christian monks and nuns. It's also, think, Buddhist monks and nuns. And think about the priests and priestesses in different pagan circles. Think about the First Nation spiritual practitioners. Many of those people were queer in some way. They were transgender. They were intersex. The word from one tribe, I can't remember the name, but it's, it's two-spirit, and it's meant to convey that that person embodies characteristics and traits from both sexes. And this concept exists in many different cultures. Plus, most autistic people, most neurodivergent people are queer. I don't think I have ever met someone who is neurodivergent and straight. And again, I include people who are demisexual, people who are asexual, even if you are attracted to the opposite sex and you're demisexual, that counts as being queer. We're not going to erase people <laughs> in this channel. <laughs> That's not what we do here. So I took the time out to explain that because I feel as though the path that I've walked down is almost stereotypical for someone who is like me. So if you have also walked down that path, we are reenacting a tradition that our ancestors have honored for thousands of years, right? Think about how valuable it would be to a tribe or a village to have a priest or a priestess or a nun who was able to come out and say, we are going to have snow in the next two days. It's going to be a lot, so make sure that you prepare that could save lives. And as I explained earlier, I'm able to smell snow up to a day before it happens. People are able to sense other natural disasters as well, to predict the change in the seasons and things of that nature very accurately because of that pattern-seeking piece of the brain. So in addition to being neurodivergent and queer, having a lot to do with how I practice, I also feel as though my evangelical background has a lot to do with how I practice. So my wife did not grow up with a lot of spirituality. Her family were CNE Catholics who didn't really practice at home. They observed Lent and Ash Wednesday, and they went to Mass sometimes. She and I have talked very, very often about how easy it is for me to accept that there's a spiritual, intangible component to our lives in this third dimensional realm. There are sentient beings that we can't touch, like our deities, like nature spirits, like animal guides. My animal guide is a lynx, and very recently I have sensed a very strong canine presence in my house, and when I did some sleuthing and some inquiry, I discovered that it was Cerberus. So that is an area of my spirituality I'm now exploring. Even though I don't associate my personal energy with canine energy, I like dogs, but I have always gravitated more towards cats and feline energy. 
So it's extremely interesting to me that Cerberus has made a debut in my spiritual practice as one of my guides. But I didn't question it when he showed up. Whereas for someone like my wife, it took her some time to accept that the experience that you're having is real. <laughs> the fact that you were meditating and you had a vision of Lady Aphrodite, or you heard someone gently whisper your name or something along those lines, that's a message for you. It took her a while to be comfortable accepting that and talking about it openly and just very matter-of-factly. Whereas for me, I had always been taught from a very young age that you might not be able to see or touch God, but God was always there and God was always watching. And God was always there to support and protect you. So the concept of a benevolent deity who wanted to support and love you was not foreign to me. And understanding that not only was there one deity that wanted to support and protect and guide me, but there were multiple deities who were more than willing to accept my veneration in exchange for their support and guidance was revelatory for me. It felt really, really good to understand that. The other piece of my spirituality was the precautionary piece. <laughs> Growing up in Appalachia, like I said, there are just certain things you don't do, and sometimes they're for practical reasons. You don't go into the woods at night because, sure, there might be not deer and other supernatural beings in there, but there are also mountain lions and bears and bobcats. <laughs> and even an angry buck is very dangerous when it is in close quarters. So you just don't go into the woods at night. Are there paranormal things in the Appalachian woods? I think that there are. But if you're sitting outside or you're going out to your car at night in the Appalachians to get something out of your car and you hear a woman screaming, you go back inside. If you feel the need, you can call the police, but you go back inside. You do not go looking for that woman for two reasons. The first being that it could be a supernatural booby trap. The second is that is exactly what cougars and bobcats sound like when they're making a fuss. <laughs> so, I also grew up with the idea of the practical and the supernatural growing up side by side, intertwined as sisters. They're inextricable from each other. It's like I explained earlier with autistic folks having supernaturally good pattern recognition just because of how our brains are wired, but also there is a spiritual component to that. Our brains are wired that way because we are more sensitive to vibration. Like I said, that is an unverified personal gnosis, but it resonates really heavily with me and it has resonated with other neurodivergent people that I've interacted with as well. The other component to my spiritual life is one that I struggled with for a very long time, and that is the idea that I am queer. As you can imagine, growing up, in a conservative Christian atmosphere, that was not something that was available to me. That was not an option. If you were AFAB, as I am, you grew up, you married a man. That is not what happened for me. <laughs> I thought I was just really good at purity culture. Though I am going to say, <laughs> if you are AFAB and you get 
butterflies when your female friends hug you, put their arms around you, or sit close to you. That is not a sensation that straight women feel. <laughs> so I'm just saying, that was my experience growing up, that that always gave me butterflies. That is not something that all women feel. <laughs> but I feel like my queerness also informed my spirituality because it forced me to examine and embrace my femininity. And in embracing my femininity, I discovered I was non-binary. My pronouns are she, they. So I am very comfortable in my physical form the way that it is. But the experience that I have with my gender is not always female. A lot of the time it moves away from female and more into an agender, demi-femme sort of area. And in terms of my magic, I feel like it allows me to understand energies like the divine masculine and the divine feminine in a more sophisticated way. Because when you start to talk to people about the divine masculine and the divine feminine, very often it's an extremely binary conversation, weirdly centered on people's genitals and the shape of their bodies, which doesn't have a lot to do with the kind of energy that you project into the world or the kind of energy that you call into you if you have more receptive energy. The kind of energy that you project or receive may have a little bit to do with the shape of your body if you're cisgender, but it has more to do with how you exist in the world and who you are as a person rather than the shape of your physical form. So the terms divine masculine and divine feminine don't exist to describe what those energies look like or who embodies them. They exist as symbols that explain how those energies function. Divine feminine is receptive, receptive energy. Receptive energy can also summon in, it can manifest, it can heal can pull in the energy needed to heal. Divine masculine is projective, electric energy that pushes out. It can defend, it can destroy, it can nurture from a long distance, it can banish. There are lots of functions to these two things that are not specific to a person's physical appearance or biology. And as a non-binary person, I feel like understanding my own gender has helped me understand the spectrum of energies that lie between divine masculine and divine feminine in addition to those two energies themselves. We work with receptive and projective energy all the time, whether we use those terms for them or not. Many practitioners do either project or receive during their spell work. So I hope that this example of my experience and how that shaped who I am in terms of both as a person and as a spiritual practitioner has been enlightening, it's been enriching, and maybe you see a piece of your own journey in the stories that I've told. That's all for today. I hope that this has been helpful and interesting. Thank you so much for listening in. 
Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest for more witchy wisdom, both here and on our blog. And you can also check out our original art on Society6 for sacred decor and more. I can't wait to talk to you again next time. Go forth, make some magic, and live your best life. Blessed be.